Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking RFS landing with boots on the ground, the secret life of vice chancellors, and skills, skills, skills. It's all coming up. There is such a tension between the OFS on the one hand saying, you know, use your autonomy, um, have the interests of students at heart, you know, deliver good outcomes with with flexibility and creativity. Oh, oh and by the way, we've decided, um, I'm not saying OFS, but to the point, you know, the, the ministers decided that some modes of delivery are not good enough. Um, Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to serve the HE policy waves this week are three fabulous guests as always. In Peckham, it's Ant Bagshaw, formerly of this parish, and now Partnership Director at OES. Ant, your hire of the week, please. I had a fabulous night at the What Uni Student Choice Awards, and it was always fun to dress up and to celebrate all good things going on in the sector. In Cheltenham, it's Rachel Hewitt, Chief Executive of Million Plus. Rachel, your highlight of the week. So this week we've launched a major new Million Plus report on levelling up uh, modern universities' roles as placemakers in their local area. And we had uh, two great parliamentary events on Tuesday, uh, one focused on the northwest and one focused on the northeast. So that was my highlight. You'll work, 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 people. Uh, and in Bristol, it's Sunday Blake, Wonky's Associate Editor. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, my highlight of the week was getting my cat's tail amputated which sounds like a really horrible highlight but he's been in so much pain with it and we've got it cut off now and he's so much happier and cuddling and purring and it's made me really happy to see him not in pain from his nerve damaged tail trigger warning cat tail amputation sorry (laughs) should have said um okay we start the week with rfs landing with boots on the ground in universities with new investigations Uh, and a bunch of other stuff coming out of the regulator in England. Rachel, talk us through it. So this week, we've seen a couple of different things coming out of the OFS. Uh, Firstly, a new initiative looking into business and management courses at eight institutions, um, and particularly highlighting in their own words, where poor quality online learning has replaced face-to-face teaching. Um, The institutions haven't been named at this stage, um, and it seems that the basis for looking at business and management courses in particular is off data around outcomes uh, and the National Student Survey. Um, we've also seen Susan Lapworth making her first speech as interim chief exec of the Office for Students and really focusing on universities need to take responsibility for their own autonomy and also considering the sort of proportionality and how they respond to the regulatory requirements of the OFS. Right. So there's a lot here. Um, I mean, and uh, I think Rachel's generous calling this a, an initiative. I mean, the, these investigations are deliberately meant to to blow up a bit of uh, blow up a bit of smoke, I think. I mean, the government, the government wanted OFS to land with boots on the ground, their words, essentially. Um, and this is this is the result of 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 what ministers want, isn't it? And the new B conditions on, on quality. 
And I, and I think it makes it makes sense in the context of OFS, which is to say, look, we, we've identified some areas where we think uh, outcomes are not good enough, so we're going to go and, and take a look. Now, I, th- I think on the face of it, that sounds plausible and reasonable. Um, the, the bit that I've got an issue with is, is this constant tension between are they interested in in the outcomes achieved by the institution or the inputs? So all of this focus on teaching methods um, and resources, um, it, it, it's assuming, I think, that um, the, these institutions, the ones under investigation, that, that their inputs are not um, are not where they should be. Now, now that may well be the case, but it, it doesn't seem like quite the the open and inquiring way of investigating uh, what's going wrong in these institutions and, and why they're not achieving the, the results that OFS is looking for. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if you recall the consultation about this, the, the sector largely suggested that um, QAA should be responsible for doing these investigations. Obviously, that was ignored along with all the other recommend, all the other kind of recommendations and uh, and comments uh, from the sector. But this, this is a quite a far cry from an uh, a QAA review, isn't it? Even though they are recruiting academics to help take part in these. Uh, these visits. Well, well, is it? I mean, I, from from reading the, the the press release, I'm not I'm not sure what the the nature of the investigation will be, and it, and it may well take the form of of. And, and I was some time ago a, a reviewer in the for the QAA, and you know we would go to institutions and we would ask questions and meet students and meet academics and um and look at the data and and, and read the paperwork and so on, and and that was um <laughs> had it had it had its pros and cons, right? What you know, it wasn't perfect, but it. But it was. Um, it could well be that that is the method they deploy. I, I think what what is uh, maybe the risk, the threat here is it's going to include teaching observation, looking at the materials um, that are being developed, you know, watching the online lectures and whatever whatever the uh, the format may be. And that's that's the bit where I think institutions will likely be worried about autonomy and their responsibility for academic standards mm, mm. one key way it's different from qa is that it doesn't include students um for 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 whatever reason OFS has decided not to include students in these in these investigations and the other thing rachel i'm interested in in your take on this because they're they're the investigations are private for now but there is a live consultation um out right now which suggests that the um OFS is intending to make all of these investigations live including the announcement of them the progress the conclusions absolutely everything in the public domain um you know <laughs> you could you could possibly imagine a kind of media spectacle with um you know ministers uh coming down and watching uh, OFS investigators with their with their wind, windbreaker jackets on um storming in um but but all of that is going to be live in the public domain in in due course, assuming that RFS ignores uh, uh, the sector's um, request for that not to be, um, how what's your advice to members when that's that all starts happening? Because it, it is where it's likely to happen in the next few months. Um, it could happen at a sensitive time in the recruitment cycle. Um, what what are you suggesting? How are you suggesting your members handle things like this? Yeah, well, I think we need uh, clarity from the OFS really on on the ways in which that would be managed, and also, you know, thinking both from universities' perspective and and our members' perspective, but also from the perspective of students who could be on those courses, um, and you know, are then that's then publicly being talked about as those those courses not being, uh, you know, up to scratch or whatever else. And I think I think for me, part of the concern with this comes with the number of different ways in which quality and standards um, are being talked about. So we've got, you know, this investigation specifically looking at one area. We've got the 
recently closed consultations on B3 conditions, um, which, you know, were incredibly uh, detailed. Um, but then we also have the um, HE reform consultation, which talks about student number caps related to quality and standards. So it's not clear to me how these different initiatives all come together and whether actually, um, you know, we're going to see duplication of uh, sort of burden, which relates to what Susan was talking about this week, um, with all these different strands going on. Yes, yeah, so that's um, interim chief executive of of RFS Susan Lapworth, who made a big speech um, earlier th- this week, didn't she? Sunday. I mean, th- it went down. I think it was a sort of mixed reaction because sh- she's arguing on the one hand that um, universities should have kind of you know less regulatory burden, um, but the the kind of the response from the sector has largely been well, you know, there's point pointed to all the different ways RFS has added kind of quite a lot of regulatory burden to. Uh, to the to day-to-day operations. Yeah, I think um, obviously that's slightly contradictory in itself. I think the other contradiction that I've sort of picked up from this is that, well, I, I guess it's contradictory in terms, but one of the things that's con- that I've been concerned about is the way that uh, poor quality seems to be used as synonymous with online provision um, when we know that isn't necessarily the case. So you know, Michelle Donnellan sort of said that she's looking to uh, sort of eradicate online learning, not eradicate or like sort of like target places where online learning was being used and and bring students back into face-to-face teaching. Um, And it kind of confused me a little bit because obviously even this week, there's been talk about digital innovation, uh, digital transformation on one hand and how that's sort of enhancing the learning environment. And then you've got this sort of, what I sort of read is quite a threatening <laughs> press release <laughs> to be like, if we find out that you're doing too much of this, then we're going to clamp down on it. And um, yeah, I just think you have to be really careful about, yeah, about automatically assuming that online provision means bad quality. I mean, it's probably why I come in here and, and you know, as, as Mark in the introduction said, you know, I, I work for a company which supports uh, institutions to develop and deliver uh, online courses. There is variable quality in online. There's variable quality in face to face. Um, we'd argue that the, um, you know, that good pedagogic design and clearly articulating what uh, what students are getting is is the basis of uh, of quality. The the core thing here, I think, to, to to Sunday's point is there is such a tension between the OFS on the one hand saying, you know use your autonomy, um, have the interests of students at heart, you know, deliver good outcomes with with flexibility and creativity. Oh, oh and by the way, we've decided, um, I'm not saying OFS, but to the point, you know, the, the minister's decided that some modes of delivery are not good enough. Um, and I, I mean, I think just coming back to Susan's speech more generally, I actually think there's a lot of um, positive, positive elements that the sector would like to find in there, which is actually saying, there, there is an invitation to uh, to have a different sort of relationship with the regulator, one with with perhaps more uh, more flexibility, more more challenge potentially to the regulator's position. Um, and I think that's that's you know th- th- there's an invitation there. But as as DK pointed out with his um, uh, amusing list of the times the the, the sector's been faced with fines that. It's um you can see you can see why people have have put all their settings to to maximally conservative. Yeah, which also which probably means um which means more work, doesn't it? It, it? However, way you look at it, I mean, 
I think I think I think there's a there's a there's a sort of massive catching up job the sector's doing with this new this new quality regime. Um, I mean, I, 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 a wonky mug to anyone who um, spots the first team of um, OFS investigators hitting your campuses. By the way, if I if I can get a picture of these um, you know these windbreaker jackets, I imagine a big yellow OFS logo on the back. Um, storming but, but, but with in. elbow patches. Without that, patches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Would, would either would any of the three of you volunteer for uh, one of these one of these visits? RFS is recruiting for for people to help them with this. I think it'd be fascinating. Look, I, I think it'd be an interesting it'd be an interesting challenge because I think how do you, you know, the the people doing that on the ground, how do you reconcile the 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 ministerial direction, the OFS regulatory position, with um, holding true to looking at the information in front of you and saying well what's good for students and um but but if we get, if we can actually come back to the why are they investigating if there are courses that are demonstrably delivering outcomes that are below what one would expect or what is reasonable i i have some sympathy with the with the regulator looking to investigate that and and, and then they have to do investigation surely surely they can't just just write letters to the institution saying please do better actually when people get onto university campuses and see what universities are doing in practice often there's a bit of a um a different position than necessarily when when points are being made you know from from on far so i think it's a good thing i think the one thing other thing that i'd add on the sort of online learning point is i think in some ways the point about online versus face-to-face is slightly being dominated by the sort of uh, traditional uh, eighteen-year-old student going away to to study, and actually, one of the things that I've been hearing is is students calling for, uh, you know, more online to supplement the face-to-face teaching that they're getting, particularly for students, you know, mature students or students with caring responsibilities and, and other things. So I think um, we need to ensure that that conversation isn't dominated by only one type of student voice. I completely completely agree with that, Rachel. Because if we think about the typical student on a on a course, maybe run by by ZOES, you know, she's in her thirties, she's got caring responsibilities. We're, we're very have very high representation of students with disabilities or or neurodiverse, and um, and they're opting for the modes that are flexible and uh, and useful for them that fit around their lives. It's also um, this has actually come up a lot in some research I've been doing uh, with Pearson. We have an event on the fifteenth of June. If anyone wants to see the launch of those findings, um, where uh, we've been looking at student diary entries on uh, at different points throughout the academic year, um, and we get them to write about different areas of belonging and inclusion. And one of the things that's come up again and again in the diary entries is these digital touch points that they're being provided with. Um, in a way that makes them feel that they're sort of part of a learning community more so than um, if they didn't have those um, digital resources. So I think, you know, if we're looking at like the student sort of life cycle uh, in a more holistic way, and we're not just looking at teaching provision, we're looking at all different areas of um, how students interact with their institution. There's actually like a lot more benefit to to digital resources as well. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's something that... Um, that this initiative is going to keep in mind. Uh, more of that, that on wonky.com and uh, links in the show notes to all of our analysis of what OFS has announced over the last few days. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. A friend got in touch recently to talk about a video expose he'd seen about university league table rankings. Admittedly, this tells you something about my friends and the kinds of conversations we have. But nevertheless, the video had been eyebrow raising for him. It was his final question that got me though. So are there any good metrics? It brought me back to something I've been pondering this term, the staff-student ratio, and whether it could do with an overhaul. 
I'm Dr. Matt Finn, a Senior Lecturer in Human Geography at the University of Exeter, and in my article, Time for New Teaching Metrics, I take a look at the familiar staff-student ratio. Using custom data prepared by the Wonky team, I look at some of its limitations and then look at some fantasy metrics that could offer some new perspectives. It's definitely an article to appeal to your inner wonk, but with the changes we're seeing in the sector and the pressures on fees and funding models, and on students themselves, it means it's all the more important than ever that our measures reflect what we think matters. Now, Heppy's out with a new briefing note all about vice-chancellors and their tenures. Uh, and what does it tell us? Uh, Heppy policy note 34 is called Digging In, the Changing Tenure of UK Vice-Chancellors. And, and what it tells us for the, the sample, it's about 50 institutions, is that from the mid-1970s to, to around 2010, average tenure was, was in decline, quite sharp decline. And then over the last decade, actually the average tenure of, of vice-chancellors has increased. What we're not learning what isn't revealed in the in the tenure is what's actually the experience of those in university leadership so clearly we know that those roles are extremely challenging particularly in the face of uh, sort of longer term trends around marketization incre- increasing regulation um the the burdens of uh, the culture wars um you know free speech on campus debates and so on and we also know that the last well you know, nearly three years has been incredibly challenging for uh, for university leadership, not just vice chancellors, but actually, you know, le- academic and professional service leaders ac- uh, across the whole across the whole institutions. Hmm. Hey, this is this is fascinating because um, so the report says, shows that that ten years are of vice chancellors are increasing. But Rachel, to, correct me if I'm wrong here. Doesn't it, it feels like in the last couple of years there's been an awful lot of change for vice chancellors? Um, I mean, maybe maybe it's just the uh, the pandemic effect, but it does feel like there's been quite a bit of churn, hasn't there? Yeah, this is this feels like a sort of um, a classic happy report where it provides evidence to something that I thought I knew, and it actually it sort of goes the other way because I felt the same. It feels like we've seen quite a lot of turnover in terms of um, vice chancellors uh, in the recent years. Um, and I, as you say, I can sort of understand the circumstances for that. I mean, there's there's the sort of uh, thing that universities are being asked to do more, I think, than they ever have been, really. And of course, that changes the role of a vice chancellor. But then the sort of surrounding political environment has been so changeable. Um, and, you know, the real challenges that we've seen through the pandemic, I um, I could understand if some decided that it was the point at which they were leaving. But it's really interesting to see this piece of work from Happy um, on what the actual patterns are showing. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I guess we can only hypothesise about uh, about why it is. But I mean, it's it's most vice chancellors I speak to don't seem to really be loving it at the moment. I mean, it's not a... Um, it's, it's not a particularly happy place to be. I mean, obviously, they get criticised for their high salaries. So, um, you know, the, 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 the things they have to suffer with are kind of well compensated for. But, um, I mean, you can kind of see the hairlines receding and the kind of the lines emerge on their face um, kind of on a, on, a, on a month-by-month basis, can't you? I had a conversation with a, a couple of vice chancellors earlier in the year, and, and was asking about the role of of joy sort of within 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 the the job itself, and kind of broadly in the institution. And, and actually, it was interesting that they first they went first to this idea of um, actually taking pleasure in the achievements of others. That actually that the the jobs themselves might not be actually um, that rewarding on a day to day basis for the you know that with that which they're doing but actually you know so much pride and recognition in the work of others um you know be it in terms of uh ref results or student outcomes um 
yeah, and kind of institutional success that they can they can and, and I think reasonably be be proud of. So the report, like it talks a lot about uh, the different things that may impact a vice chancellor choosing to stay in a position like longer, um, and one of those is this idea that you know they can't jump ship in the middle of a crisis. So um, or and also governing bodies want to keep that sort of figurehead in for some sort of stability. Um, there were a couple of things I was thinking about as I was reading the report that I think that um, Hepi didn't point to. So it was comprehensive. Obviously, they were talking about um, pandemic, industrial action, um, Brexit, culture war, um, obviously the Office of Students as well. Um, and I know that you mentioned this, but I do think that, you know, the rise in salaries are probably do have a little bit to play in the fact that vice chancellors stay in their pace a little bit longer. Um, I mean, in 2020 uh, to 2021, that the, the sort of infamous figure was that vice, vice chancellors charities, sorry, the infamous figure was that vice chancellors salaries went up uh, 9.1 million um, in the country. Like that is a significant pull factor. Um, and then the other thing that I think the report didn't touch upon that vice chancellors have to negotiate with now that they didn't necessarily have to uh, sort of 10 years ago or 15 years ago is, um, you know, that kind of collectivized voice on social media. And that can have two different impacts. One, obviously, it's overtly critical. Um, so you get a lot of academics are on Twitter. Um, striking discourse is, is on Twitter. And there's a lot of sort of mobilization against certain institutional decisions that are made um, that vice chancellors have to contest with. Obviously, students use social media a lot more. So there's um, things like rent strikes or occupations are easily organised amongst the students at a larger scale than we've seen before. So obviously, occupations have always happened. And, you know, you can look through <laughs> higher education history and see people occupying for different reasons. But um, last year when there was a rent strike, that was that was nationwide. And I know um, Nancy Rothwell specifically was all over the news at one point for her response to that. So I think there's a kind of um, heightened surveillance of vice chancellors as well that is really uh, prominent that the report didn't really take into consideration. We think about, you know, and I, you know, some years ago worked for for vice chancellors so like that was it was where i kind of uh cut my teeth in in universities think about the motivating factors so you know salaries are part of it but actually salaries are is a comparatively little comparatively small motivator for people typically working in academia that actually the the sort of the challenge the opportunity the um the the relationships are, are often you know often much more important you know one of the things that's happened in the um, the settlement for universities in terms of the uh, the introduction of the the nine thousand pound fee for domestic students actually resulted in many universities having significantly more uh, opportunity to invest. You know, even with the reduction in capital funding and so on, that actually probably it's been you know, and there's and there's been growth. There's been growth in student numbers, you know, domestically and internationally. It's meant you know, new buildings, new campuses, um, new research areas. And, and you know, hiring people and growing is a lot more fun than uh, contracting institutions. And, you know, for all the criticism, uh, the sort of the industrial industrial relations 
um, criticism, I don't believe there's any vice chancellor who's wanting to take away benefits from anyone in the institution. That actually the people I've worked with and for have always wanted to do more and better for the for colleagues. I think one other angle that we haven't yet touched on, um, which it doesn't necessarily mean uh, wouldn't account for a change in the length of tenure, but is interesting, I think, is the role of university leaders now within the local areas in which they're based. Now, I can only speak on behalf of my members with this, but I know I've heard a lot about the roles in terms of working with local councils, working with local NHS trusts, working with schools and colleges that sort of not focus specifically on, uh, you know, their role as for students, but but for the sort of the wider community as well. And I think that's one angle that we don't um, we don't necessarily see or talk about as much, but is really core for especially the universities I represent, I think, um, in terms of their sort of relationship with the local communities. And it is one area where actually that length of tenure is really valuable because being able to sustain those relationships with other civic leaders is really important. So I, I think there's, you know, I think there isn't a right answer to how long an institutional leader should stay. But I think to, you know, building on that, Rachel, that actually those relationships are you know, are enormously important and need to be need to be nurtured. Right. All this season, we're working with the Association of University Administrators to bring you dispatches from the desks of hardworking HE professionals around the country. This week, we caught up with James Newby, who discussed setting up the new provider, M Knight. I'm James Newby. I'm Chief Operating Officer at the New Model Institute for Technology and Engineering, NMIT. NMIT is a new provider, a, a genuinely new provider. We haven't emerged from any precursor institution. We've been launched entirely from scratch. In fact, I think we're one of the first institutions in the last 40-odd years in the UK uh, to launch entirely from scratch. And why am I working in this area? Well, NMIT's an incredibly exciting um, project. It's actually just too exciting to resist, especially if you've had quite a long career in an established university. Uh, so I've moved from the safety and security and consistency uh, of a large uh, institution, and I've moved into a, a fairly choppy, um, unpredictable startup uh, new provider, and it's incredibly exciting. And we're also working at the really at the edge of uh, higher education practice. We're challenging uh, thinking. We're challenging HE policy. We're challenging delivery practice, and that's hugely exciting as well. And what's the best thing I've done since joining? Well, I think the thing I'm most proud of is that uh, now that we have our first cohorts of students studying on our programs, just working with them, it's pretty evident that we're providing opportunities for a higher education pathway that I don't think was available to them uh, from the established university sector before. So we genuinely creating new opportunities. That's hugely rewarding and very exciting. And what's the biggest challenge? Well, I think the biggest single challenge we face as a new provider and as a small institution and as a small niche specialist institution, I'd have to say is regulation. Um, our, our HE regulatory system is designed for large organisations. It's designed to um, force innovation back to a status quo form of delivery. It's very, very difficult to do things differently and at the same time comply with all the regulatory obligations imposed. So whilst regulation, I think, is challenging in large organisations, it's almost overwhelmingly onerous in small new providers. And what's my tip for others working in this area? I think my tip would be to innovate very carefully. Um, pick the one or two areas of innovation you think the institution needs to focus on. Stick to those relentlessly and pursue them relentlessly. 
you will feel all sorts of pressure to to revert back to the to the status quo way of doing things. The regulator will try to force you that way. The the economic circumstances of being in a small institution will try to force you that way, uh, and also everybody else who knows about higher education will try to force you back um, to that as well. So be very very focused about it, and remember that your business plan will inevitably be wrong. James will be speaking at the AUA Annual Conference at the University of Manchester on the 7th to 8th of July, and you can find links in the show notes or find out more at aua.ac.uk. Now, our associate editor, David Kernahan, has been wondering, what on earth is going on with the Office of Students Chair this week? So we need to talk about James Wharton, Lord Wharton of Yarm, the current chair of the Office for Students Board. There have been sustained questions about just what makes this close friend and political ally of the Prime Minister the right person to head up an arm's-length regulator in higher education and his insistence on keeping the Conservative whip in the House of Lords hasn't really helped. But last week saw a further notable blot in a copybook filled with them, the revelation that Wharton spoke at CPAC Hungary, delivering a video message to support an event that offered a platform to disturbing anti-Semite talk show host Zasolt Bayer. CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, is a global event aimed at allowing right-wing politicians to connect with friends across the world. Friends in this case including Hungarian dictator Viktor Orban, a man who closed a central European university in Hungary in 2019 and moved to transfer the ownership of Hungarian universities to government-appointed foundations in 2021. He was the opening speaker. Wharton took time to praise Orban's recent election victory, which was achieved against a backdrop of election administration that fell short of international standards. As he holds a public role, James Wharton is required to follow the Nolan principles of public life, which include selflessness and integrity. And as an Office for Student Support member, he is required to avoid any actions which could embarrass the OFS or risk the organisation being brought into disrepute, including through political activities, and is required to abstain from all controversial political activity. For a government that has recently refused to engage with the National Union of Students after accusations of anti-Semitism, and has repeatedly attempted to clarify that the Free Speech Bill somehow does not apply to anti-Semitic speech, the absence of action against, or even a reprimand for, the OFS chair could be seen as evidence of double standards. Outside of running the office for students for two days a week and appearing at conferences alongside anti-Semites, James Wharton maintains a number of business interests. For example, he is director of an education company, Virtual Class Limited, which trades as third space learning, that receives funding from DfE as part of the government's national tutoring programme. I've asked DfE about this and the department has not yet responded. Okay, so the government is out with a whole bunch of new policy and information and research about skills. Sunday, talk us through it. Right. So uh, the Department for Education has recently announced £10 million uh, to support the Open University um, to partner with further education colleges. Um, And this is basically to expand higher education um, and technical education cold spot areas um, where there is like little or no provision. Um, And these are going to be uh, under three years, um, both on like a blend of inline Sorry, start again. <laughs> These are going to be under three year courses and use a blend of in person and online delivery and are designed to provide the skills people need to move into high skill, high wage careers. Um, the 
announcement has been followed by the release of data from the government's new unit for future skills. Um, and this data shows uh, job sectors and regions that people work in after gaining a qualification, um, which the government says is the first time it has brought further and higher education data together and will allow researchers to see routes young people take through education. Um, the Open University says that it expects to work with around 10 to 12 colleges um, and the first group is going to be announced in the autumn term. All right, so the, there's a bunch of other stuff as well um, the government came out with this week. So um, it, it gives a kind of grounding, doesn't it, for for a big programme of skills reform. And, but the, I guess the question is whether there's there's political will to take it all forward. I really hope there is. The, you know, <laughs> clearly we have serious problems in, uh, you know, locally, you know, potentially being addressed by local skills plans, uh, nationally in terms of productivity. Um, I worry to some extent that the the, the pursuing this sort of data solutions around mapping skills, um, you know, the taxonomies and so on is, is missing, um, you know, a few crucial points to actually affecting change. One of the things that's, that's missing, for example, I, I think is um, a renewed focus on employer-led skills and training. So actually saying, you know, it seems to me a lot of the premise in, in the way the government's thinking is, well, okay, we'll shovel in skills into the labour market, then the you know employers will be delighted because they'll get all the candidates that they need but the, but the, the reality has to be well i'm going to take on this candidate recognizing there's a deficit in one area or another but but i'm going to supply that and, and we've seen over you know over many years a, a real decline in investment from employers into into workplace training mm. i mean and rachel there's, there's surely lots of opportunity for for all sorts of universities but i I'm guessing, you know, given the sorts of provision that Million Plus universities have, it seems like an agenda that you could really grasp. Definitely. So it's actually something, uh, one of the recommendations from the report that we put out this week was about addressing cold spots in higher education. Um, and we really were um, focusing on, because often there's talk about whether we need new universities in places, um, which obviously is one option, but actually there's some great work being done addressing cold spots by existing universities and sort of utilising those that knowledge and infrastructure and expertise. So, um, you know, for example, among my members, there's the sort of Barrow campus um, at the University of Cumbria and the Burnley campus at uh, UCLan, and both are helping to address uh, cold spots in, in HE and, and address those skills gaps and doing really great things. So I think there are some good opportunities there. I mean, this, the, the whole area is, is complicated in how we address those skills gaps. And that's partly why our conversations around uh, the lifelong loan entitlement and all of those sorts of things uh, have to get into such level of detail. But I think it's a, it's a, good, um, it's a good step, definitely. I think you're right, Rachel, to to highlight those uh, those campuses of, of of your members and other universities, um, but also, uh, as pointed out, the relationships with FE colleges and so on. For me, the the idea of creating new universities is a complete uh, complete red herring. When we we actually want to sustain and support those institutions that we've got already, we could do so much more. I think in helping align the uh, incentives and funding regimes and regulatory position for for FE and HE um, for uh, linking with apprenticeships and so on that, that actually the, a much more coordinated tertiary system um, is the that's the prize that's the thing that's going to actually change uh, you know outcomes for people but but new institutions just just strikes me as creating more unsustainable organizations. Mm. I guess is that the point of the OU thing, and that then they're not creating new institutions; they're sort of using an existing one that can can use its infrastructure to to plug the cold spots. I mean, there's lots of debate. There's always been debate about the, the cold cold spots for HE um, or, or skills, and um, 
I mean, ten million pounds, you know, it's not going to buy you a new university, is it? And you know, anywhere. So this is this is something. This is something that can be done. Well, well, and 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 the OU's capabilities for online and blended delivery. So, so you know, on the one hand, OFS saying, uh, you know, we're not interested in blended, and, and and on the other, saying, well, actually, that is a really great way of getting high quality education um, distributed across the country. I think also when we talk about uh, cold spots in in HE, it's a good opportunity to have the sort of reminder that when we we talk about the numbers or the proportions of people going into HE. That's really not evenly distributed across the country. And actually, there are areas where there are really low levels of participation in higher education in, in whatever form that that takes. Um, and so I think it's useful when we have these conversations about cold spots that we sort of we acknowledge that. And it's not a, a sort of uh, uh, we can have a not very nuanced debate about the numbers of people going to HE sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing is that the the lifelong learning entitlement should should help with it, shouldn't it? And if if that's put in place and there's a kind of underpinning infrastructure behind the the, the student loan system for people to move around, take you know different types of qualifications, different types of different points in their lives, then we could actually get to a much better place. I mean, it's it, you could argue that I guess the stuff this week is a piece of the puzzle in terms of the data and the understanding of what's going on where and what what's needed and what what works. LLE, another piece of the puzzle. It feels like there's some other big bits, you know, that the HE sector is going to have to come on board massively with this, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I th- I think actually we're seeing that the sector is is willing and open to do that. I think there's, um, you know, we've we've been really positive about the the potential of the LLE. Of course, the technical delivery is very complicated, but actually I think there are good opportunities, and I think the HE sector should get on board with with these initiatives because it's it's you know comes back to the the meaning of why our universities. Um, do what they do really i think one of the key bits of that mark is about the flexibility in uh what you mark as a kind of dosage of learning and how do, how do we actually help people enable uh le- the learning in the volume and and you know I guess speed of delivery as well that, that suits them I, th- I think there's risks in pursuing things you know I, I know very few people are happy with say apprenticeship standards because they are quite very prescriptive around uh what needs to to happen and the and the sort of the that the volume of learning required, I suspect it's one of the reasons why my completion's low. Um, so so I think there's a there are some really big infrastructural policy um, uh, kind of components that you know new funding isn't going to help if if the um, the sort of frameworks behind it aren't, aren't aligned. I think I think what's particularly good about this is like the data focus. Um, because there is a lot of um, like chat about plug-in skills gaps and upskilling and leveling up, um, but little data or evidence. So I think like one looking at looking at a really local level, um, because you know like broad brush regional oversight can actually eclipse sort of areas of deprivation. So like looking like really specifically and gathering data and skills, um, not just qualification skills. I think that's an important differentiation that it makes too, and like harnessing provision uh, to drive regional growth is really important um and i also think the other data point that's really important that they're going to be tracking is the routes that people are taking through further and higher education because we know especially for first generation students like we know that role modeling is really important uh we know that things like mentoring are important but not always like accessible um so i think the fact that they're going to be uh using like examples and routes that people have taken where they've taken a qualification and then they've gone into a certain role 
that's going to be a vital resource. But I do, <laughs> one caveat to that is, I do think that that is data that's going to be uh, in need of constant updating. So it can't just be collected intermittently. Um, and the reason I say that is because the world of work, obviously in some career trajectories, is changing so fast that it may not be relevant uh, in sort of five years time. And that kind of field may look completely different. So um, especially when we're talking about uh, skills um, rather than, uh, sort of uh, subjects or qualifications so um, yeah data the data focus I was like yeah that's brilliant this is great um, but yeah the one caveat I think is that they're going to need it's going to need constant updating and monitoring so that's about it for this week remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically just search for the wonky show via Spotify Apple or Google podcasts or wherever else you listen and to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything that's going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about all of our subscription services. So, thanks very much to Ant, Rachel Sunday, and everyone at Team Wonky that makes it happen. Until next week, stay wonky. Stay wonky.